You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning, by the way. Glad you guys are here. I am stoked about our text today. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark, heading up to Easter Sunday. And, and I got to say, like, I'm just stoked about Easter. Easter's going to be fun. Easter Sunday is always fun. Um, and, and, and I know this is going to sound like just like the pastry thing I have to tell you, but I do want to remind you, like, Easter Sunday is a great time to invite your friends and family to church. It's the time people are, you know, they say uh, Christmas Eve and Easter are the times people are most likely to engage in an invitation to church. And you guys know that if someone hangs out here on Easter, they're going to hear about Jesus, and they're going to hear about um, his thoughts for that person. And so I would encourage you guys to think about that. Think about friends or family or neighbors that you've been encountering or engaging and that, that you might consider uh, in, inviting. In fact, we have those little door hanger things out there if you want to prayer walk your own neighborhood and pray over your neighbors and, and those different things. But anyway, today we're in Mark. And we're leading up to Easter. And, and I know you guys already know this if you've been here the last few weeks, but our text today is going to be heavy uh, because we're getting ready for Easter. And that's how it goes. Uh, Tony Campolo is an old school uh, Baptist pastor, and he, he used to have this line where he'd say, uh, Friday is depressing, but that's okay because you know Sunday's coming. Which is where we're at. We are in the midst of the suffering, the passion of Christ. He is preparing for his death in this text. And so we're going to jump right into that. And it's going to be a little sobering. And as I've said the last few weeks, I want to really encourage you guys to let this text speak to you from its own, from its own voice. Let this text be sobering to you today. Let it, let it kind of give you a few moments for self-reflection. I know sobering self-reflection isn't usually something we associate with 20 extra toddlers in the room. But at the same time, <laughs> it's a gift, and we're glad you're here. Children, we're glad you're here. Although I do have to say that we're definitely at the point in the story where Jesus gets flogged, and I don't think we could have picked a worse Sunday to invite all the kids into the room. But there you go. That's how it is. So we're in Mark chapter 15, if you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab one of our house Bibles down the end of each row. We really, really care about access to God's Word here at Red Tree. And so if you don't own a Bible, I would love for you to grab one of those and take it home uh, or talk to one of our pastors and we'll give you a nicer one. But if you need a Bible this morning, um, I would encourage you to grab one of those to actually open a book and look at the text. I know all the young people are judging me for saying that, but I think there's something about the tactile experience of this, especially when we're in, um, just the text kind of as heavy as we're in today, I think it'll be good. So we're in Mark 15, and we're going to start in chapter, or verse 1 of Mark 15, and it tells us this. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. 
And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, the king of the Jews. And they were striking him on the head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And this is the word of the Lord. So, what do we do with our text today? I have a thought, but, but let's, let's take a moment, if, if it's alright with you guys, and let's Let's pray over these next few minutes we spend together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present in this space. God, we know that you are present. And so we ask that you make your presence known as you engage your word to us this morning. Holy Spirit, be our interpreter. Be the illuminator of your word to us today. Speak to us new truths about your love for us and your gospel plan and the truth of who you are. Remind us of things we have heard and forgotten. And Holy Spirit, convict us of the sin in our heart that we might be more repentant and more dependent on you and our belief and our engagement in the gospel might grow today. Holy Spirit, let us, let us just meet you this morning that we might leave here having spent the morning with you. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Here's what I'd like to do with this text. I want to kind of walk back through the story. And to be honest with you guys, this text pretty much speaks for itself. I want to point out maybe just a couple of the historical pieces or contextual pieces that I think might give a little clarity to this, but, but really I, I want us to just hear this as Mark chose to share it. And I think that will lead us to a couple teachings uh, from Paul uh, and, a, and a teaching specifically from Peter and 1 Peter, and we'll, we'll end out our time uh, probably in the prophets. So, to catch us back up in the story. 
See, the thing is, we're jumping into the story today with the pieces already moving and moving pretty fast, right? Like this, it's, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of over-segment the scripture when we engage it because someone has conveniently put like chapter and verse and headings in there for us. But, but this is one large story and we're jumping in in the middle of a lot of moving parts. And so if you recall, Jesus has come to Jerusalem, right? He has revealed himself as Messiah to his followers. He's told them that Messiah does not mean what they think it means. And they've made their way to Jerusalem to a ton of fanfare, right? There was a lot of worship and excitement and engagement and a crowd when Jesus enters Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover for the last time. He goes in the temple. He spars theologically with the religious leaders of his day. He casts his judgment on the failures of the temple worship and the Jewish system of his day. They begin to plot his demise eminently. He, he celebrates Passover with his closest friends. He institutes what, what we call the Lord's Supper. And then we walk through just this systematic abandonment of Christ as things seem to fall apart for him, right? Just a few chapters ago, things seem to be going really awesome. The crowds are shouting Hosanna in the highest. The religious leaders are backing down to his teaching and interpretation of scripture. His followers are declaring him the Christ and declaring their undying loyalty to him. And then over the course of a few short hours, all of Jesus's closest friends turn and run and abandon him. Judas betrays him into the hands of his enemies, and Peter walks away when he has an opportunity to defend him. And Jesus is left completely and utterly alone. And the religious leaders, they put him through this farce of a trial where they bring false accusations against him, and they have condemned him to death and begun to beat and blaspheme him. So when we jump into our text today, We need to know things have already gone really bad. There's already a bloodlust in the air that will not be satisfied while Jesus is still breathing. And so after this trial of Jesus, if you want to use that word, the the Sanhedrin collect the rest of their leaders and their council and they say, we need to kill this guy. But they can't because They're in occupied Rome. And so they know they need to get the Romans involved to execute Jesus. And by the way, it's important to note here that they actually could have just killed Jesus. They could have just taken him out back and killed him. They had complete control over him. They had him bound. They had armed guards. But they're more sinister than this. You see, they want to get Rome involved because they don't want Jesus to become a martyr that inspires a movement. They don't want his followers to, to make claims about him or about the injustice of this. And so they need to associate Jesus and his movement with treason. They need to get a crucifixion and Pilate involved so that this thing becomes so stained that those cowards who ran away in the garden will keep on running. So they get Jesus and they bring him over to Pilate, who's the Roman governor who's been put 
over this peace of Palestine. Now, we've talked about this a couple times, but if you remember, Palestine as a whole has been conquered by Rome, and at one point it was ruled by Herod the Great, right? That's the guy who's kind of the big baddie when Jesus is born. But when Herod dies and he hands it off to his kids, none of them were deemed worthy enough to rule the whole province. And so Caesar divided it up into four sections and gave a section to each kid. And the Herod who was over Judea, this part that included Jerusalem and and the capital, was really, really inept and had so many formal complaints lodged against him with the Roman government that Caesar removed him from office and put a Roman governorship over Judea. And so Pilate is just the newest governor sent to Judea to rule this part of the kingdom in the stead of Caesar. And it's important to know Pilate and know who he is. You know, it's weird to say this, but if you look back at the two kind of oldest Christian creeds, right, like the Apostles' Creed, it always specifically mentions Pilate in Jesus' crucifixion. And that's not just because we're trying to dig on Pilate, but it's because the early Christians saw the necessity of placing Christ's death at a specific point in human history. And so Pilate is mentioned because he was actually a governor in real human history over a real province that was controlled by the Roman government. And his role in the story is actually important. And so we need to know just a little bit about Pilate. Not a lot, because he's not super interesting. <laughs> he's pretty standard Roman governor. He's a dude who's worked his way up in the military, who has military prowess and political prowess, and he's gained for himself a governorship, which is a great way to advance your career. We know about Pilate from a lot of historians from that day and that era, and basically they all say the same thing. Pilate was pretty good at his job, but he pretty much hated everyone in Palestine. He was just there to advance his career. He had a strong distaste for the Jewish people because he saw that they got special privileges that other provinces didn't get. And the only reason they got them is because they rebelled so often and they caused so many problems. And so every time there would be some kind of religious, spiritual, cultural conflict, his gut reaction would be to draw a hard line and just kill a bunch of people. And then he would realize, well, that doesn't go well. And so he would usually back off and give them what they wanted. And that's just kind of the story of Pilate's time in Palestine. In fact, a couple emperors later, the the thought process changed on how a governor should rule a land. And they looked at Pilate and said, you're too brutal. You should be much kinder. And they pulled him out. But he was there a long time. He was there like 17 years or something like that. He went through several major insurrections. He uh, actually helped grow Judea, all these different things. He was a pretty good political leader. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He spent as little time in Jerusalem as he could. He pretty much was only there during a couple important feast days. And so he would come to Jerusalem during Passover, and he would stay in Herod the Great's palace. That was kind of his, his Jerusalem house. And so he's there. This political leader, this Roman guy, and the Sanhedrin, the high priests, bring Jesus, bound and beaten and condemned, to Pilate, and they essentially begin asking Pilate to condemn him to death. Now, this piece is really interesting for us because they bring a lot of charges against Jesus. You can read about it in more detail in the other Gospels, but they bring these charges against Jesus, and Pilate zones in. He he knows something is up. He knows something is fishy, and so he zones in straight to Jesus and just goes, 
are you really the king of the Jews? And this is important to note because essentially they're trying to connect Jesus to this idea of treason, right? Like they, they know that most of his religious claims that are offensive and blasphemous to them, the Romans don't care about. But they also know that the idea of Messiah in Jewish culture is insanely political and directly connected to Roman oppression. And so if they can get him convicted of claiming to be a Messiah, the anointed king of God's people, then they can get rid of him. And so they come to Pilate and they go, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate zones in on this. And the reason is really interesting because he's not an idiot. He knows the Sanhedrin hate him as much as he hates them. He knows that they are much more likely to plot an insurrection than to turn in an insurrectionist. And so when these guys, his enemies, walk up and hand him someone and go, this guy's trying to overthrow your rule, he's kind of like, huh, and you're turning him in. (laughs) Interesting. And so he looks at Jesus and essentially gives him an out. He looks at him and goes, come on, is this really happening? You really claiming that? Jesus' response here is key to our understanding of this text. I love this. Jesus basically says, what do you think? Isn't that great? (laughs) Jesus has already been beaten up. He's already been like hurt, bound, tortured. Like all this stuff has already started. Pilate, this guy, right, who, who has the keys to the cross, the guy who says yes or no on who gets nailed to trees, looks at him and says, is this true? And Jesus just goes, I don't know what you think, man. And he has no idea how to deal with this. They keep accusing, they keep shouting, and Pilate's like, come on, dude, aren't you going to say anything right now? And Jesus is just silent, just takes it, just absorbs the false accusations. By the way, we could do a whole sermon just on the idea of Christ standing so firm in God's calling that he just absorbs injustice. That'll preach to how we engage the broken world around us. That'll preach to how we deal with our own high horses, but we're not going there today. Jesus absorbs this injustice silently. He allows these accusations to be spoken over him, and he looks at the guy who thinks he's in charge, and he just sits there quietly. And Pilate has no idea what to do with this. He is used to begging and groveling. He's not used to someone just resolutely silent in the face of something that is obviously fishy, right? So Pilate begins to scheme, because here's where the story gets interesting. While this is happening, the crowd shows up. Now, if you've been in our study of Mark with us up to this point, you might remember that the crowd is a character that Mark employs a lot in in, in Jesus' ministry, The crowd has a really interesting relationship with Jesus. The masses, the people, they they come to Jesus and they love him when he's giving them stuff and they hate him when he doesn't do what they want. And they're so fickle and they're back and forth and they demand and demand and they take and take. And the crowd is not presented very positively in Mark. And now they show up. And we're let into this weird custom that existed where Pilate would release a prisoner during the festival time. And so the crowd shows up saying, hey, 
It's time. Give us one of our crooks back. Come on. And Pilate starts playing political chess. Because here's the thing. He doesn't know why the Sanhedrin hates Jesus, probably. But he knows he doesn't like the Sanhedrin. And so he's like, well, I'm just going to mess up their plan if I can. And so he has a couple guys in jail from an insurrection that turned violent and turned murderous. It's important to note, by the way, that Mark was so confident his readers would know what he was talking about that he just called it the insurrection, which I think is interesting. But they've got these couple guys, and one of them is named Barabbas. He actually, we actually find this out from the other testimonies that his, his, his given name is Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Probably goes by Barabbas, but Jesus Barabbas. And so Pilate presents this interesting little thing to the crowd where he goes, yeah, 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 I got you. I always give you a prisoner. So here's what we're going to do. I'll give you a Jesus. Which Jesus do you want? Jesus Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus, the king of the Jews? What sounds good? And this actually turns out poorly for Pilate, which often happens when you play political chess. But the, the high priests whip the crowd into a frenzy, and they begin to ask, for Jesus Barabbas. They begin to ask for the insurrectionist. And Pilate at this point evaluates the situation and realizes he knows something's up, but he doesn't care enough to do anything about it. Because we have to remember, if you know anything about Pilate, it's this. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about the Jewish people. He's there for his career. He's there to use Palestine as a stepping stone to get back to Rome. And so when he sees a mob starting to form, he goes, eh, this is not worth it. You can have him. And he releases Jesus to be crucified. And first, they scourge Jesus. And then they, they, they send him off to the centurions to prepare him for crucifixion. And I won't belabor us with that part of the story. I know there are a bunch of little kids in the room. But it is important to note that, that the gospel writers move past the scourging and crucifixion of Jesus really quickly without a lot of detail because there wasn't a need because these things were so burned into the psyche of the Roman people. They didn't need a deep explanation. I, I do want to point out just a couple quick things without being overly gruesome for our context. But Jesus' flogging was public, right? It was done in the same room with the crowds and the high priests there. And that's important to know, that they would strip him in time to a pole and whip him into shreds in front of the people who were accusing him. And it's important to note that the Roman flogging, which is almost universally fatal in and of itself, is not enough to satisfy the bloodlust and the hatred of the high priest in that moment. They see Jesus dying. Like there's, uh, one commentator said that once, once the flogging happens, the person is dead, but the body is catching up to the reality. It's important to note that they see Jesus in that state, and their, their hatred is still not satisfying. They still demand his crucifixion. It needs to go another step. It needs to be worse. He deserves worse than this. And so they release Barabbas, and they take Jesus off to the soldiers to be crucified. And you guys know this part, right? They, 
they take this cloak and they lay it over his bloody and shredded back and they mock him as king, right? The, the high priests already blasphemed him as a prophet, right? Prophesy which one of us is striking you. And now the governmental authorities mock him as a king and they beat him and they shove a crown of thorns onto his head and they lay this cloak over his back and leave it there just long enough for the blood to dry so they can like rip it back off sort of thing. And then they, they lead him off to be crucified. And that's our story. See you guys later. Happy Sunday. It's brutal. It's, it's inhumane. It's awful. It's dark. It's painful. It's also not terribly unique. The Romans scourged a lot of people, crucified a lot of people. Mobs got angry and controlled by people with political motives and did a lot of injustice to a lot of people who dared to speak up. Jesus' physical torture in this moment is not actually terribly unique. So what do we do with this text? Are we supposed to sit and find ourselves in it? Do we reflect on the the callous hatred of the high priests and, and look for the callousness in our own hearts or the indifferent, unjust apathy of Pilate and look for the numbness in our own hearts? Or, or perhaps we look at the foolish naivety of the crowd and, and see ourselves in that? Perhaps. If that's what the Spirit's telling you today, I'm not going to tell him he's wrong. But I think God has something for us today in this text that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ. I want us to take just a few moments and reflect on Jesus himself in this text. Because I think, I think this is where we're going to hear the gospel this morning. And I think it's probably really important for a lot of people in this room. You see, it's really easy to read this text as the failure piece of the story. Everything fell apart. Things were going so well for Christ, and then it all fell apart. But luckily, God is God, and he's powerful, and he took this failure and turned it into something amazing. But that's not actually what we see here. You see, at this point, you, can, you know that there was a point, at some point, between the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the moment when the first whip cracked across Jesus' back, there was a moment when the high priest thought, we did it. He's trapped. We got him. This is going to happen. We've won. He fell into our trap, and it's taken care of. We're in control of this situation. But what we see in this text, if we look just right under the surface, is that Jesus didn't fall into any trap. This is not a story of the victory of sin or the failure of Christ. Rather, every single piece of this is according to the plan of Christ. And I know like, there's like the Reformed ones in the room who are like, yeah, God's sovereignty, absolutely. Yeah. But, 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 but I want you to think about this. You see, Christ is no fool. He, he put these events into motion. 
There was a moment in the garden where Jesus was sweating blood and begging God to give him a different option. And God said, no, you're doing this. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours. And from that moment on, Christ was resolute in his plan to be crucified. We need to know that. This is a story of the love-fueled, amazing, divine self-control of our Christ. This is a story of Jesus exerting power and authority over the broken and cursed world around him that he might make a way of freedom for us. See, Christ stands silent before Pilate because this is his plan. Because he has no defense to make. Because Pilate is a pawn in his plan to lead him to the crucifixion. He's not begging. He's not desperate. He's resolute. I think it's interesting. You know, in Philippians 2, Paul talks about how uh, there will come a day in the Christ hymn, right? There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in this story, in the darkest day in human history, Jesus' most bitter, hateful enemies declare him to be the prophet of God and the king of the Jews. And they don't even realize. They don't even realize that they're playing into God's divine plan. They think they've sprung a trap. In reality, Christ has sprung a trap on the curse. And he is destroying it. I think it's important to know, you know, we in Colossians 1, right, it talks about how Christ is sovereign over creation, that in him and through him and by him all things were made and all things continue, right? Scripture teaches us that Christ's divine power is the sustaining power of the universe. Think about that. That means that, means that when a high priest spoke an unjust, lying blasphemy against Christ, the neuron that fired off in his brain to formulate the words and the thought to, to move down and, and draw breath out of his lungs and speak the lies over Christ happened because it was Jesus' pleasure to sustain that neuron. And a few moments later, when Pilate stands in control over Jesus saying, have you no words to say? That his very body is holding together because of the pleasure of Christ to sustain his life. And even, even when the Roman guards are whipping him and killing him, It is at the pleasure and power of Jesus that the muscles even function in the arm to allow them to draw the whip upon Christ's back. Our Jesus is quiet and resolute in the face of his own unjust death, not out of weakness, not out of failure, but out of his insane strength 
out of his absolute divine willpower, fueled by love of God and love for you. I want you to think about that. Christ is willingly, not just enduring this experience, but Christ is orchestrating and sustaining this experience because that's how much he loves God and loves you. He is operating in submission to the will of God the Father, to his glory, for your betterment because you are his beloved. The author of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Christ is not weak and helpless, but strong and resolute and madly in love. Do you hear that? Madly in love. It is his love for God and his dedication to his glory and his love for you, his beloved who he's pursuing. You know, this is a few months back, but Pastor Matt preached a sermon we were earlier in Mark, and he said, he said, you'll do crazy stuff when you're in love, right? We'll gladly sacrifice and experience loss and pain when we're in love. Beloved of Jesus, this is your Christ today. This is your Jesus enduring the brutality of the cross out of love for you. Come on. Peter would later pen these words. <laughs> this is in 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse 18, he says, For Christ... He's speaking, by the way, to a, a persecuted church that's suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. When Barabbas was released that day, they let go of the wrong Jesus. They let go of the murderer and the insurrectionist. And they killed their king who had done nothing but love them and serve them. But the reality is this. Their, their mind never changed about Christ. You see, from day one, from day one, as soon as the crowd saw Jesus' power, they said, destroy Rome. Lead a revolt. Win us our freedom from Rome. Come on, do it. You have the power. You can do it. And Christ said, no. It's not what this is about. You don't understand it. That's not what this thing is about. That's not what the Messiah does. And there was this back and forth for 12 chapters of this book of the people saying, come on, use your power, destroy Rome, give us freedom. And Christ saying, no, you don't understand the kingdom of God is bigger than Rome and it's bigger than political oppression. Trust me. Over and over, back and forth. And there finally in our text today came a breaking point 
where the crowd said, we have been asking you to be an insurrectionist, and you keep saying no. So give us the insurrectionist, and you go die. And Christ said, absolutely, that's the point. Christ knew this moment was coming. He planned for this moment. In chapter 10, when they're begging him to be an insurrectionist, he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise. Beloved, this was Christ's plan. This was the working out of the kingdom. And they missed it. They wanted, they wanted this little piece of freedom. This little expression of freedom. And when Christ didn't give them what they wanted, it, it drew out blood and fury and anger and hatred. And Christ's response was, that's exactly my point. So let me go die for you. So that stuff can die. See, this, this is the gospel. Your Jesus loves you so much. He sees you in your weakness. He sees you in your temper tantrum of rage and hatred and misunderstanding. Where you desire things for yourself that are lesser goods. And he says, I love you too much to leave you there. I love you too much to make those sort of decisions about your life. We're going to do something bigger, something better. It's called the kingdom, and you get to be a part of it. This is our Jesus. So here's how I'm going to end out our time. I'm going to reread that text we read earlier this morning from Isaiah. And I want you to hear this text. I want you to hear this text from the perspective of the power and the self-control and the love of Jesus. I want you to see the complete and total lack of weakness in this text. As I read this, the, the band's going to come back up and we're going to take a few minutes when I'm done. I want to invite you guys just to spend a few minutes in prayer reflecting on who Christ is and who you are with him and, and what his love means for you. We're going to have a couple of prayer counselors around the room, Dan and Kim. If you guys want to kind of get ready, we'll be, they'll be off to the side. If you want to grab someone to pray with, you can grab them. You can sit by yourself. You can grab one of our pastors if you want to. We'll have a mic up here that you can pray over the church if the Spirit leads you. But I wanna, I'm going to read this, and I want us to just sit. Sit with Jesus. Sit in prayer. Reflect on who he is and who he says he is. So listen to this word from Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. As many were astonished at you. 
His appearance was so marred, it was beyond human semblance. His form was beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a a root that comes up out of dry ground. He had no form, no majesty that we should look at him, no, no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. But beloved, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed, beloved. With his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered? He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressions and he bore the sins of many and he makes intercession for transgressors. Jesus, you are our wonderful wonderful Savior. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you stood in silence and you bore the injustice and you absorbed the wrong God. If we're honest, that petty self-centered hatred lives in every single one of us. But God, you are so good. And you love us so well. Jesus, we need you today. We need your strength to cover our weakness. 
We need your love to cover our selfishness. We need your sacrifice to cover our cowardice and self-preservation. Jesus, we just need you. God, for those in this room whose hearts are hard and numb, who know a lot of things about you, but don't know you, Jesus, soften our hearts. Break our hearts. For those of us in this room who live with one foot on each side of the fence, who love you and love this world, God, give us clear eyes to see the foolishness of the mob and the beauty of your love. And God, for those of us who are chasing after you with every ounce of our strength, delight us in you more. Woo us. Build in us a love that, that mirrors your love for us and for this world and for God. Holy Spirit, what I'm asking is that you would change us make us different than we are. Make us more like you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.